This podcast examines Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty. Situating his Oscar-winning contemporary epic within the context of Italy, its cinematic traditions, longer history, and wider politics. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the fresh water system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? To which we might add, what has Italy ever done for cinema? That is, other than provide rich and varied stories, fantastic locations, constructed Cinecita, one of the world's biggest film studios, and given birth to one of cinema's most important movements, neorealism. From the Tiber, the Seven Hills and the Palimpsest of architectural epochs and styles, through to the writings of Virgil, Cicero and Ovid, Rome possesses nearly 3,000 years of literature. Well, 2,771 to be precise because legend tells us that on April the 21st, 735 BC, the twin brothers of Romulus and Remus were suckled by the same she-wolf. But, close as the infants were, when the siblings came of age, they became rivals and Romulus killed Remus. But in victory, Romulus found that his then little town had practically no inhabitants. So to populate it, he offered asylum to fugitives and exiles. Finding that those fugitives and exiles were almost exclusively male, Romulus then invited the neighbouring Sabines to a festival, during which he abducted the women, which in turn resulted in a battle with the Sabine men. That means Rome takes its name from a murderer, kidnapper and warmonger. With such dramatic history, we perhaps should not be surprised then to learn that Italy also gave birth to cinema's historical epic. While many film historians would have us believe that D.W. Griffith created the genre in 1915 with The Birth of a Nation, the dates show that Italy beat Hollywood to that particular finish line a year earlier with Cabiria. Directed by Giovanni Pastrone, it chronicled the very early days of the Roman Empire in a manner cinema had never seen before. Beyond the sheer scale of Pastrone's production, what is most striking about it is the fluidity of its camera movement. The production of Cabiria came in the immediate aftermath of Italy's military invasion of Libya in 1912. Spurred by the campaign's early successes, the Italian film industry began producing a series of historical spectacles. The Fall of Troy, The Last Days of Pompeii, Nero and Covadis. Those stories not only suggest great production scale, but curiously, immense decadence, tragedy, defeat and cultural catastrophe. Pastrone's epic was undoubtedly the largest, most ambitious and most articulate of this short-lived cycle. Short-lived because within two years, Italy and Europe were plunged into the catastrophic World War. This element is important to note because while Cabiria was cinema's first historical epic, it also inadvertently gave birth to another type of film, one in which the filmmaker reflected the state of the nation. In 1957, Federico Fellini released a small-scale contemporary drama about a prostitute, Maria, played by Giulietta Messina, who searches in vain for true love. Maria's nickname is Cabiria, and Fellini bestowed her that moniker in reference to Pastroni's film. And then Fellini reinforced the reference by naming his film Knights of Cabiria. Set in Rome, it ends with the lovelorn Cabiria being led back to the city that so abused her 
by a group of young revellers who sing and dance about her on their Vespas and Lambrettas. By the late 50s, Italy had benefited from the enormous economic investment America had delivered via the Marshall Plan, a scheme designed to resuscitate Europe in the wake of World War II. That also resulted in massive Hollywood investment, with Rome's studio Cinecittà, initially set up by the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, providing the facilities for a new spate of historical epics. Covadis, Helen of Troy, Ben-Hur, Cleopatra, and the fall of the Roman Empire. We're in command now, Livius. Rome is ours. Take the throne. Be Caesar. Gaius Metellus Livius, the people are asking for you. The empire is yours, Livius. You would not find me suitable, because my first official act would be to have you all crucified. Two million dinars for the throne of Rome. Two million dinars for the throne. Two million five hundred thousand dinars. With so many Hollywood productions going on, by the mid-50s, Cinecittà was known as Hollywood on the Tiber. With so many stars wandering around Rome, and with Italy's economic revival, there emerged a new culture built on celebrity and gossip, and to the more observing eye, a moral indifference. Fellini returned to Rome in 1960 with his sprawling epic La Dolce Vita, a film that exposed what he saw as cultural decadence and impending decline. Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty begins in a suitably flamboyant style, which gently acknowledges the way Fellini opened his epic, while at the same time charting a different course. La Dolce Vita begins with a statue of Christ seemingly flying across an ancient Roman viaduct, then passing over the modern suburban developments on the outskirts of the city, before settling over the Vatican. This is the second coming of Christ, and upon his return, the Messiah will witness a culture returning to idolatry. By contrast, Sorrentino begins his film in a void, with the camera staring down the barrel of a cannon. The camera pulls back and the cannon fires, and we see that we are on Rome's Janiculum Hill. Around us are casual visitors and tourists. The Steadicam floats across the gardens, giving us a glimpse of a memorial. It is dedicated to Giuseppe Garibaldi, the man credited with having united Italy in the 1860s. The moving camera then brings us to a pool of water at the Fontana dell'Acqua Paola. A man is washing himself. Tourists, who have undoubtedly come to see the city's great beauties, assemble around their tour guide. But one of them, seemingly overcome by the wondrous sights, suffers a heart attack and dies. All this happens to the dulcet sounds of sacred music being sung by a woman. Historical and political monuments, sightseers, sacred music. Sorrentino has smoothly established his setting and themes, but neither the plot nor the central character has yet to emerge. So, just as Fellini cut from the image of Christ to revelers in a nightclub, 
So too does Sorrentino take us away to a party. The guests dance and dance and dance for the next six minutes. After which Sorrentino finally brings us to his lead character, Jep Gambardella, played by Tony Servillo. As Marcello Mastroianni was to Federico Fellini, Servillo is Sorrentino's preferred actor, having appeared in five of his films. In The Great Beauty, we first see Jep standing between two lines of dancers, and as they gyrate to the rhythms of the music, Sorrentino slips into slow motion as Jep looks directly at us. We hear his voice, but his lips do not move. While Jep appears to be in the centre of things, clearly he is visually, sonically, socially, aesthetically, and consciously detached. Again, not completely unlike Mastroianni's Marcello Rubini in Fellini's film. Another cinematic antecedent for Sorrentino is Michelangelo Antonioni's crisis trilogy from the early 1960s, La Ventura, La Notte and Nicolise. Yet, for all its similarities to those films and La Dolce Vita, all explicit references to Fellini's and Antonioni's masterpieces are conspicuously absent from The Great Beauty. Instead, Sorrentino takes us on a different journey because, with those films already over 50 years old, and Fellini and Antonioni having long since passed away, Italy has changed, hasn't it? Here is Sorrentino in interview with Adrian Wooten at the BFI in 2015. Um, the film is about a man, like um, all his other films, um, but through the, the character um, we see uh, a, a type of Italy and the type of Italy he deals with. The problem with that type of Italy is that it is wrapped in squalor and uh, what remains untold, what it is ineffable, is that both the character and Paolo have something in common, is that at the end of the day they like Italy that way. That is an aspect of Italy, that wrapping up in squalor is something that they like. Jep is a dissipated novelist a once-fated but now-fated author who burst onto the scene with his celebrated work, The Human Apparatus. But since then, he has done little more than pen articles and magazines, commenting on, but not delving into in any meaningful way, contemporary life. Instead, he mires himself in what Sorrentino calls the culture of nothing. Sorrentino's decision to have his protagonist as a writer, or rather a purveyor of gossip, draws a further comparison to Fellini's La Dolce Vita, where Marcello Rubini was a gossip columnist experiencing a profound existential crisis. Yet, for all Jep's notions of superiority, his observations, ruminations and reflections on Rome's past and present, its writers and artists, sculptors, architects, public spaces, politicians and celebrities, he rarely recognises himself as an iteration of all he purveys. His failure is compounded because he has not learned from Rubini's crisis. What Sorrentino might be saying is that by extension, Italy has not learned from Fellini's observation. Fellini was remarking on, amongst other things, an Italian society that may have risen from the ashes caused by Mussolini, only to descend into a sultry pot of decadence. And after the insulting reign of Silvio Berlusconi, which ushered in an era of pornocracy, 
a political currency that trades not in legislation, the public good or social justice, but instead blatant lies, lurid gossip, constant distraction and multiple forms of prostitution. It appears that Italy is falling for the corrupt scent once more. The great beauty is a search for it, but despite the abundance of sublime images, Jep never finds it. Just as Antonioni's films ended in emotional desolation, the great beauty concludes with resignation. And where La Dolce Vita finishes with Rubini at a water's edge with a young woman nearby, so too does the great beauty. Yes, for Sorrentino and Fellini, youth and the female form symbolise the all-elusive beauty. But for Fellini, water was different. For him, it was a purifier, a cleanser. The most obvious example being the moment where Marcello follows Anita Ekberg's Sylvia into the Trevi Fountain. While Sylvia's presence there echoes the mythology of Venus, Marcello will be, in an idolatrous sense, baptised and reborn. However, for Sorrentino, water appears to be something else. Yes, it comes in beatific fountains, but also in bottles, something you drink. Specifically, Peroni beer and Desirono liqueur, both of which receive such prominent positions in the film, we might mistake them for product placement. In the last couple of years, Desirono has enjoyed a considerable increase in sales, and while abroad the liqueur is considered a brand of cultural sophistication, for Italian fashionistas, it is distinctively parochial. Enter the world of Di Serono. Di Serono the world's favourite Italian liqueur. But no matter what brand you drink, the effect is intoxicating and ultimately debilitating. The great beauty ends with a young man, obviously Jep, standing on steps leading down to the sea. A few steps above him is a young woman. She looks back at him and sees that young Jep is now old. Obviously, this is a memory and Jep seems to be arriving upon an epiphany. For Jep, indeed for all of us, while we age and die, beauty is immortal. Or at least it symbolises our strained efforts to achieve immortality, to become eternal. Beauty never changes and thus never ages. But while beauty is fixed forever in the firmament, beauty only fixates the spectator. It does not fix us. We are never healed by beauty's presence. Exposure to it never cures us of ageing. Instead, beauty is a narcotic in which we hope to lose ourselves. But like lotus eaters, we awaken to discover we are still mortal, still ailing, forever failing. Mm -hmm.